Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I'm Ben Duncan, and on this podcast, I will be interviewing prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana. Did you know that you can leave voice messages to ask questions or make recommendations for future guests on our website? We recently received this voice message highlighting somebody from the Salesforce ecosystem that Kian thought we'd like to hear more about. Hey, Ben, hope you're doing well. I wanted to leave you a message just to let you know that I have someone in mind who I think would be a really great guest on your show. His name is Seamus Ruiz Earl. He founded the company carabinergroup.com based out of California, but operating all throughout the US and, and globally. He's got a pretty inspirational story. Thank you so much, Ben. In today's episode, I'm joined by Seamus Ruiz Earl. Seamus is the managing director of the Carabiner Group, a Salesforce consulting business based out of the US. Through the episode, we hear more about how Seamus got started in the Salesforce ecosystem and why he was given a chance to do a Salesforce project for a financial institution when he had no Salesforce experience. We then look at what point he felt he could build a career and also a business in the Salesforce ecosystem. And we look at how he went from one customer to then securing customer two and three and what the initial pitch was like. We discuss when he started hiring and what his approach was and why he has started giving opportunities to students, people that are currently doing their degrees in the US and giving exposure and experience in the Salesforce ecosystem to these people. We look at how quickly someone can become competent in the Salesforce ecosystem and uh, the kind of tasks and responsibilities that Seamus has been able to give these students as they're upskilling. We look at how his business differs from other consulting partners, the retained model that he uses and he works to with his customers and why his customers feel that's a suitable way of engaging a business and the value they get from being retained. And then we look at the plans for the future and how he hopes the business will continue growing. So a really interesting episode. Seamus is running a consulting business that differs from a lot of other businesses in the ecosystem. So I think there's lots of value for anyone in this episode that people might be looking to start their own consulting business or even use a consulting partner in the future. Then I think Seamus sheds a lot of light around how these different models work. So uh, I hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. Seamus, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to hear more about you and your business. So yeah, thank you very much. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I, uh, I always like to look backwards and, uh, and kind of understand your story in a bit more detail on how you kind of found your way into this ecosystem and, and into the role that you now have as a business owner. Um, so how, how did you get started with Salesforce? Yeah, so it's an interesting story, you know, very happenstance. Initially, I, I ended up in a Salesforce role through my pursuit of, of trying to become an investment banker of all things. The intent was, you know, cold call a whole bunch of investment banks at 17 and say, hey, give me a job, any job, I'll take anything. And, you know, time after time, rejection, rejection. But luckily, one finally gave me a chance and said, hey, have you ever heard of Salesforce before? I'd never heard of Salesforce in my life, but they said, there's this cool thing called Trailhead, spend the next six months learning what you need to, to learn in order to help us out. And uh, six months later, I joined and the rest is sort of uh, sort of history there. 
So why do you think they gave you a chance? Because we, we see a lot of people are looking for their first chance in, in the Salesforce ecosystem right now. Um, what was it about you that you, you think kind of made them give you an opportunity? You know, I think that a lot of it had to do with perseverance. You know, I was I was pretty upfront with the interviewer uh, at that point saying, hey, I, I called 25 banks. I'm not going to let this stop me. A lot of the interpersonal skills that you develop through that process, being okay with rejection, moving forward, not letting it kind of stop you down, is an element that any, you know, smart, talented, uh, educated, you know, hiring manager is going to pick up on and say, this is somebody that we want to be a part of our team. So I think that that had an element to do with it. I think it was also just the right place at the right time. They had a need. They knew they needed to solve it. I brought you know myself to them. It wasn't like they were looking, but it was finding that perfect sort of situation to join. Sure. So at the point you, you uh, I guess, presented yourself to them, you had no idea what Salesforce was. You weren't targeting a Salesforce role. It just so happened that they came to you and said, we're, we're looking to do this piece of work. Can you pick it up? Yeah. So, you know, in, in the financial world, it's like any, any port in a storm, right? You know, anything that I could get experience to, you know, bolster my resume, you know, become a more attractive applicant when I was in university, you know, anything to get me over that line. And so, you know, I was under 18, I couldn't touch the financials of the business for, you know, regulatory reasons, but they were kind enough to give me that opportunity. You know, I lived in the Bay Area, so I knew about the Salesforce Tower. It was being built at that time, but that was about the extent of my knowledge. Sure. So um, when you, yeah, you were like 17, right, at that point. So I think at that time, you threw yourself into Trailhead, like you said, and, and I think you were, were one of the first or the youngest people to, to hit uh, Ranger status. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, that's what they told me when I when I presented at Dreamforce later that year. So it's it sort of, you know, the, the, the boulder, you know, started rolling down that hill gaining momentum because you know I was getting into Salesforce I enjoyed it I found I was good at it I, it was something that I could gain skill in so I reached out to Salesforce corporate and said hey you know I hear there's this really cool thing called Dreamforce any chance that there's scholarships for it I'm, I'm not going to be able to afford you know $2000 ticket I said wow we've never had anybody really reach out about this before why don't you come down to the tower we'd love to interview you learn your story and eventually, you know, that led to me speaking at Dreamforce that year and sort of serving as a mini ambassador to kind of get as many college students as, as involved as possible. Because, as you know, you know, there's a, a huge gap in the marketplace right now. We need more talent. Uh, we need more skilled individuals to, to pick it up. And college students, hopefully, will will hear the call and, and start working on it. Sure. So um, again, going back to your age then. So did you did you then start that job but continue studying? Was it like a part time role? Yeah, so I worked, so I graduated secondary school, high school at 17, and then I went to college out in Massachusetts at Boston College, and I continued to work with that firm throughout pretty much the entire time. So between them and, and eventually having other clients, I worked approximately 30 to 40 hours a week in addition to my studies in the, the Salesforce ecosystem. Sure. So at what point did you think to yourself, I can make a business out of this? Well, I think that Honestly, what prompted the, we always knew that there would be a business element to it, right? There's so much demand. The decision was just, do I go at it alone or do I start my own firm? And um, initially, to be honest with you, I was going to go and work for a big four consultancy, uh, gain great experience, work with an established firm. And then COVID-19 hit and they delayed my start date out, you know, by almost a year. And so, 
it gave me the opportunity to really sit back and consider, okay, I've enjoyed being an independent consultant. Can I make a go out of it? And I had nothing better to do. So it was, why not keep booking up, expanding, filled myself up. I hired another person. I filled them up. And at that point it was like, okay, this is starting to become a real business. I come to a crossroads. Do I want to do this full time? And ultimately just seeing all of the experience that I was getting, all of the interactions that I was able to have with C-suite level executives that I no, never would have been able to have at the other firm really pushed me over the edge to, to make that jump. Sure. So can you remember, um, so you, you obviously had your initial client, but can you remember what your pitch was to, to then start building out the client base and, and getting client two and three and so on? Well, uh, I, I can tell you that it boils down to a couple of, of elements. One is that, quite frankly, cost, right? So as a student, I'm, I was pretty much able to undercut everybody else in the marketplace if people were willing to give me the, the, the shot. So as long as someone is intelligent and has taken the time, you know, has case studies, has people backing them up saying that they do good work, it's okay to take you know, that person at their word that they're doing good quality at a low rate. And that was one of the things that I found was that ultimately I was able to undercut everybody else that was going for the same roles. The other element is that I had a little bit of that financial services experience at that point, right? So I was able to say, hey, I've worked in investment banking. I've worked in a similar org and I've seen the struggles, right? This isn't someone who just has the Salesforce knowledge. I have the industry experience to back that up. And I'm able to apply that to help solve your problems more expeditiously, less expensively, and ultimately just understand even the lingo that you're speaking rather than having to just have the technical knowledge. Sure. Did you ever get pushback? Like, did anyone ever say you're at university still or, you know, you're coming into these finance companies with, you know, not a huge amount of experience? So did you get companies saying, well, you know, we're, we're safer going with the bigger partners? You know, by the time that I was, you know, if they were sitting down to listen to me, if I had actually gotten in front of a live person, we'd sort of overcome that obstacle already. So um, we certainly, you know, would reach out to people all the time and not hear back. And, and that would be, you know, that, that's par for course. But once we actually sat down and explained, you know, I'm lucky I've been given a lot of opportunities to sort of develop a, a, a solid resume. And I graduated high school at 17. I graduated from college three years later with two degrees. I've got sort of the, luckily, sort of the chops to back it up on paper, which makes people take me seriously until I can get in the door and really you know, sell them on my abilities and, and that of my team. So to date, we haven't really experienced, you know, the hard rejection in the room of you're too young, you're, you're, you're not experienced enough, et cetera, et cetera, because we're lucky we have generated an awful lot of experience in our particular niche over a relatively short amount of time. How important has that remaining niche been to you, do you think, like rather than just going right now, we can do everything? Having that niche, is that still kind of key to your success? You know, I think that over time we've pivoted slightly in that our brand is more so that we're looking to partner with people for the long term. That's become sort of our core identity and that we're, you know, we'll take project work, but that's really not, you know, our, our bread and butter. We want to be there as a, a true partner with someone for years to come. And so we've sort of navigated, we're still very much, don't get me wrong, financial services centered, but we've also been able to expand and, and our brand, so to speak, our niche has simply been that we're longing to partner for the long term rather than have a particular industry knowledge. But certainly it gives us a distinguisher when we're talking with, you know, private wealth management firms or merchant banks or 
you know, loan issuers, mortgage brokers that, hey, we've been here before, we've seen it. That always gives, you know, sort of an edge. And then uh, you mentioned, obviously, uh, the team you've been able to build. So how did you approach that from an individual um, consultant, like you said, to, to then scaling a team? What was your approach to getting the first people through the door and uh, making sure they were the right people? You know, I this is, I think, probably the most challenging element of scaling any business. Not like that. I've got that much experience in doing that. But it certainly is picking the right talent was was one of those foremost challenges. And I leaned heavily on the quote unquote Ohana, right? Saying, hey, if you could pick anybody, who would it be? And I spoke with a number of people who were kind of already happy in their existing roles and said, all right, you're, you're not gonna come over, but but give me somebody who who would and who's, who's really happy and, and excited to kind of start something new. Was able to get some good talent from there. And on the flip side of that, we're also looking at sort of alternative sources of talent in that we're not just focused on building a consulting team. We're trying to build an organization around it as well. So a solid sales team so that we can go out there and expand and generate that business, finding the the high quality clients that we want. A team of content specialists who are going out there and generating, you know, engaging content about Salesforce, about the case studies that we've done. I think that by bringing all those skill sets together, you're able to find people who are experts in their own craft without needing to necessarily find that one superstar who can do it okay. all. And, and you've, um, you've continued to, uh, because of your success through university and or college, as you, you guys over there call it, you were a student and managing uh, to deliver Salesforce projects on the side. Um, I believe you've still got some affiliation with bringing students into the Salesforce ecosystem. Is that right? Yeah. So we have a unique perspective, obviously, because of my own you know, personal experience that students are often discounted earlier than they should be. You know, it's, it's not that 100% of students are going to be the perfect fit for every role. That's, that's certainly not our argument. But there are unique individuals who are driven, who, you know, went to university because that's what they were told to do, but aren't simply content sitting in the classes in a passive learning environment. So right now, right, there's such a, you know, a drought, if you will, of talent, uh, affordable talent, at least across the global ecosystem that our perspective is if we can start exposing students at a young age, freshman, sophomore, year one, year two, to the ecosystem and giving them projects, they're not you know, world ending, but having them in the room, learning by osmosis, learning by action in some cases, then by the time they graduate, if they choose to come back and, and work with us, they'll have I don't know, a year or two years of practical experience under their belts, propelling them forward and making them that much more effective out of the gate, rather than just someone who's fresh out of school who may have, you know, the exact same acumen or, you know, natural gifts, but they just haven't been able to hone those through practical experience to that point. There's also, without going, you know, too into detail, a lot of things that a business can use help with. Our social media team, for example, is entirely made up of students and you know, new college grads. So they're heading that 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 train off by storm and expanding our, our base um, because they know it and they've studied it and they're they're able to put that book knowledge to use in a both a cost effective and you know mutually beneficial sure. way. Yeah it's interesting. And so if you offer a piece of work to a student at the moment, what kind of work can they get involved in? From a Salesforce perspective, you know, for fresh out of the gate, you know, they, they, I guess you're putting them through trailhead and some sort of learning curve initially, but, but how, how quickly can they be effective on a project and what kind of work can they be doing? So we, we kind of have a, a generalized rule of thumb that 
students before they touch anything active need to have two to three super badges and the admin cert. That's just sort of a baseline of knowledge. With that being said, you know, there's plenty of things that students can get involved with. You know, I've mentioned the content team. We're big on, you know, generating content about why Salesforce is a great career, how they can get involved with it. So joining the content team is, is an area where we've recruited heavily into, and that will get exposed to what Salesforce is. If you're having to write an article about something, you're having to go deep into it and, and really understand it in order to craft that message. So they're learning there combined with sort of an active side on Trailhead. And even, you know, everybody needs to be able to, you know, every firm is going to need to clean Excel sheets from time to time, consolidate data, do these manual-ish tasks that college students are eager to do. They're eager to gain that knowledge and gain that experience. Um, it may not be the most glamorous thing, but they get exposed. And then over time, you know, after a year or, or so, they'll be able to start realizing, okay, I can pull this report for you. Here, I've shown you how to do it in Trailhead. Let me, you know, do this in a, in a controlled environment. Have you seen that when you go and speak to these students, they're already aware of Salesforce as a, as a career opportunity or are you having to kind of plant that seed for them? Absolutely, we have to plot, plant the seed. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. And to your point of, of sort of, it's not like a, a totally easy entry into the ecosystem, right? People are loath to hire people who have no experience. It's very often that they won't take that leap and hire someone who, who just doesn't have that, that practical hands-on knowledge. In our case, it is a very viable career path. If, if you have the ability to go through, learn, get your certifications, interact with Trailhead, gain that experience, do the super badges. We believe that it's it's one of the, the fastest growing and honestly most financially advantageous routes for, for students coming out of school. The problem is that even though Salesforce is as ubiquitous as Microsoft Word or Microsoft Excel, it is not taught in the same way because the application is different, right? Despite Salesforce now being used in educational settings, people aren't realizing it right that every time they call uh, you know a help hotline on the phone they may you know be interacting with someone using salesforce but it's not visible to them so they don't even know about it all they know is that hey there's this you know tower at every major city that's associated with salesforce that's it as soon as they get into their role as an entry-level sdr or a bdr or you know somebody who who's brand new they realize wow this thing is you know, everywhere, every company is using it. Every job description asks if you have Salesforce experience. Gosh, I should have been spending time learning this in school. And so we, you know, we try to work with Salesforce student groups. We try to get that message out there. But ultimately, there's very smart, very talented people who are going down the path of, you know, finance or medicine or technology or engineering, but they just don't know about Salesforce. They don't know that it's a possibility. And as soon as they hear about it, they hear about the starting salaries, they hear about the opportunities and what it actually is, they're fascinated and, and they jump right in. It's just getting them to that point. It's that education curve. So have you, uh, and I, I don't know how long you've been doing this in terms of using other students, but have you seen people that have then finished their education and are, are like, are you seeing that they're instantly wanting to come and join your business if, if, if it's gone through a whole term of, of people kind of getting to that point? Or are you even seeing people that are saying, well, actually, I, I don't want to carry on studying because uh, Salesforce is everything I want to do uh, right now anyway? So we do see sort of a, a combination of the two, right? So, I mean, I myself experienced the, the pull of like, well, if I, if I could go and work for Deloitte, PwC, Accenture of the world, 
you know, I've got more practical experience than half the people in their entry level class who are coming from university. Why don't I just drop out and do that? Obviously, we, we encourage people to pay that piece of paper, you know, at least for the foreseeable future of a, of a university degree is, is, is well worth the time and effort if you can get through it. So we certainly encourage people to, to stick around, although we do see, you know, some exits uh, if, if school just isn't, isn't worth it, or particularly if they're at an institution that may not be considered you know, by society's view as the most prestigious, then they say, okay, well, I'm learning much more experience here. I can go and get a job and work for a leading, you know, investment firm doing Salesforce. Why would I even bother with university? On the flip side of that, we do see a combination of two factors encourage people to stay with our firm. One is that we pay our starting, you know, I know because I went through the recruiting what the rates are at other firms and and I try to add on 15 or 20% just because it's worth it to retain that talent. And on the flip side, we're, we're very much mobile, right? You know, a 21 year old would never normally be able to lead a team of consultants, but that's not out of hand here. If, if they have the right experience, if they have the right temperament, if they've been in front of clients for two or three years at that point already, it very much, the aged being not a number side to this means that we're able to have much greater mobility on a promotion schedule, for example, responsibility schedule in terms of, you know, compared to another firm. This is probably something you don't want to hear um, because I hope it doesn't happen. But in a way, I'm interested because if someone then leaves your business, how it will be interesting to see how much they've jumped ahead of their peers from other organizations because of the learning curve that you're able to give them. So like if they're going into one of these bigger corporates and they've had this exposure with you for a year or two, does that then position them as, as someone that's much more senior than their peers? It would be interesting to know. Obviously, you don't want to find that out, right? But You know, I would agree with you. I don't really want to find that out. And, and I hope that I don't have to in, in some respects. But I'm also not afraid of it. And the reason I'm not afraid of it is that the vast majority of these larger firms aren't malleable in that status, right? When I graduated, I would probably have been at a senior consultant level. If, if we really take the experience and we, we wrap it up, but there were no talking to any of the, the major firms about taking on a brand new university student as it, in, in that capacity. So I don't actually know if it will translate on paper. You know, they'll actually have to have heard of the firm. They'll have to have recognized that we stole business or something, you know, that we've done a good job, you know, change something in the industry before they recognize that, wow, okay, this actually is, this experience is twice as valuable or three times as valuable on a year by year basis. So I think we still have quite a ways to go before we have sort of industry recognition of how you know valuable the, the experience is, by which time hopefully we're big enough where we don't yeah. have to worry about yeah. losing people. So what else makes you different as a business? Because um, from my understanding, obviously you, you mentioned initially price was, was a big driver, but I think that's kind of continued as well, right? So you, is it, am I correct in saying you have a flat like fee like per, whether you pay X, you pay X and, and that enables you access to all different levels within the business of the customer? Yeah. So we, you know, under the, we've really tried to build the business off of the concerns that we've heard from our customers. And because we were growing and acquiring customers at, at a rate of speed that was pretty high, we were able to be you know, flexible and malleable as we were forming it. And so a number of key complaints and concerns have, have sort of influenced the way we do business now. One is the fact that customers didn't like the fact that stringent, strict statements of work limited the actual functionality of the solution they were given. So 
the idea of a consultant charging an extra hour of work to put in a checkbox field or something because it wasn't delineated on the statement of work is unfortunately seems to be a much more common occurrence than you know I would hope in an industry like this. And so we said, you know, we definitely don't want to be, you know, building the firm like that. On the other side, customers also complained about the fact that, you know, they would spend quite a sum of, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars to put in a system. It would all seem to work okay. They would sign off on the solution. The, the client would go and and start using it. Consultant would fly away, and two months later, the solution would break in some way, or they they'd uncover a flaw that they didn't know existed. And if they try to rearrange that consultant, either the consultant isn't interested because they have the business to go off and do you know, themselves elsewhere, or they wanna charge you know, a, an additional sum of money and, and keep working to solve that problem. So when we reconcile those two, the, the biggest solution that we had was, okay, let's keep it simple. We charge $150 US flat rate, and you get access to a certain number of hours with the team. And the team consists of, you know, couple of juniors, a couple of seniors, and a scrum master and, you know, an architect to kind of lead the team. And that gives you, you know, on a retainer model, so five or 10 hours a week, access to that team across the entire team in order to solve whatever issues might be coming up. We found that our customers really like that because they know that, hey, you're not, first of all, you're not shelling out a, a ton of money up front um, for a team that you're not familiar with and, and you don't know the quality of work to expect. Second, you know, the, the industry rate is usually pretty high, much higher than that. So they like that they're still getting a great deal. And third, they know that we're really incentivized to build quality solutions for them over the longer term and work alongside them to build up their tech stack in a sustainable way. Because if we're not making that high profit margin on those short-term engagements, we're really, you know, working towards keeping that client happy, being attentive to their needs, et cetera, et cetera. And we've seen great success with that. It's sort of a, we kind of coin it as a consultants as a service model because it really is more like having a, a true partner or a team member on call. I, I completely see the value of that. And uh, I, I think that, that will be something that, that happens more regularly in the ecosystem. I think um, you, you guys are, are doing it now, but I think more people will follow. But it, it, I guess for, for a consulting partner, if someone's looking to start up a, a business, it's also, I guess, gathering pace under that model can, although I, I see the value in the model and I think people will go down that route, it's a lot easier for someone that's starting a business to go actually to get the revenue through it better for me just to do big lump sum projects and have a lump sum of cash to scale the business. So what, what gave you the confidence to go with this model and, and know that over time it will build and you'll have more customers and I guess a predictability of, of long-term revenue, right? Well, I think that the predictability element happens in that we actually ask our customers to partner with us. So we say, hey, we'll do three months on a trial basis. And then after that point in time, we ask you to commit for a nine month period to work with us. So as long as they're happy with the, the level of service and we've had a 95% you know, conversion rate of, of people who start with us, who, who go on to that longer period of time, um, as long as they're happy with it, everyone's, you know, secure that both the support is going to be there and that the revenue will be following, right? So in my mind, it's actually a much more secure way to grow and to scale because, you know, as a consultant, I personally don't feel comfortable doing more than 20 hours per project a week because I feel like there's too much that can go wrong, misalignment on, you know, customer vision with, you know, the progress that, that is happening. And by the time, you know, you do 20 or 30 hours worth of work, that's, you know, 
five, six thousand dollars that was spent potentially doing something that the customer wasn't happy with in the future. And by restricting that down and having a much more diversified model, not only as you know, as a business owner, are you less dependent on any one client as a revenue stream, but you're more secure in the fact that you have uh, a, a diverse set of clients that you get to work with, a diverse set of networks, and ultimately a lower commitment to each of them, allowing you to be more flexible and malleable as, as needs arise. So do you see that these companies you're working with under this model, they, they tend not to need an internal person at all, that no Salesforce, and you are there, you're just an extension of their team? So we do certainly see that as being, you know, how we're treated in the industry. So in, in financial services, for example, you know, there could be a team of 10 people managing $10 billion in assets or something like that. From a human capital perspective, that industry is less intensive as, as much as it is based on you know, intellectual capital. With that being said, there are you know, conscious needs that people have you know, in order to be able to report on revenue, in order to be able to determine the success of a particular quarter or of the assets under their management. And we're able to be that for them in a much more cost-effective way than it would be to hire someone to fill those needs you know, full-time, right? If you're hiring us for 10 hours a week, it's going to be a, a, a more effective way of, of accomplishing those needs. The same is, is applied to you know, startups, right? Probably all the way through series B or series C, revenue ops is not something that companies always commit the necessary resources to in order to hire those full-time people. And usually when they do, they're well overworked, right? And, and they're trying to accomplish all of the needs. We get to serve as sort of that Band-Aid um, that comes in and say, hey, you know, we have this specialized set of knowledge, and this is something where you can just email us, you know, Seamus, I need a report on X, Y, and Z. We're able to take a look at it 24 hours later, get it back to you, and you know it's going to be done right and done well, rather than trying to spend, you know, half a day trying to figure it out yourself going through Trailhead. I had a conversation with a, a guy called uh, Bradley Rice from the US. Uh, he's based out of Florida. I'm not sure if you've seen him online, but he's big on freelancing. And he calls himself an independent consultant, right? So he doesn't have a business per se of, of t team members, but he does like 20 hour blocks or um, you know, t 10 hours here for a customer, 10 hours there. And, and he was saying that if, you, if the customer doesn't use those 10 hours, it, it's kind of like for them, as long as they're getting value and they're, they're, they're giving enough work and, and like they, they don't come back and say, well, I only used eight. It's kind of, because for them, it's more work to then get someone else upskilled on the system and, and as long it's just an agreement, right, that some some weeks will be more, some weeks will be less, but it kind of averages itself out. Is that how you see it when it is a, a like a, a bigger business, right? You've got you've got um, a number of these agreements running, a number of team members working on things. Like, how to the point do, does the timesheeting need to be to keep everyone happy? So it's certainly one of those things that as we scale, we're going to have to deal with more. You know, I always tell as part of kind of my introductory conversation with people, my family's background is in Ireland, basically, you know, farming and, and pouring concrete for a living, right? So in those small scale communities, it's just a little bit, business is done a little bit differently where, you know, you give a little, you take a yeah. little, it's more of a communal element. And I seem to have inherited that a little bit in the business to the point of if someone need, you know, if we're on a 10 hour agreement with someone and it takes us 20 to do the work for that particular week, they're still gonna get charged 10. Because first of all, the product, we take such pride in, in what we do for, for better or for worse that it needs to be the best version of what we're delivering possible. To your point of, you know, is that scalable? 
potentially not, you know, eventually we're going to need to have a lot better tracking in place of, of being able to say, all right, there's, there's going to be a cutoff. Once people move beyond their 5% over their, their allotment, we're going to need to start charging for them, something like that. But until we have to do that, I'm, I'm certainly, you know, happy to go that mile and above to kind of help, you know, from a customer service perspective. That's, that's why we're trusted partners rather than just a vendor. I feel like that helps solidify that. To your point about, you know, expiring hours if they don't use it, you know, that sort of relationship, I sort of view, you know, there's that that old peanut, the peanuts cartoon with Linus and his safe, you know, his, his blanket, his comfort blanket, right? We are the comfort blanket. We're there that when, you know, the the system breaks, when something is urgent, you know, I got a call today, three hours ago, that a brand new client needs something by the end of the day tomorrow. I cleared my schedule with the exception of this podcast and said, okay, let's jump on the Zoom, let's get it done. And we're gonna successfully deliver that project in time. And that's just part of who we are as you know, a nimble, agile agency is that we do have a tr an unfortunate track record of being you know, placed with very short timelines and getting the resources in place and delivering them. And people love that. And so they realize that that's a, such a huge value as opposed to having a freelancer that you have to go out and search and interview for, that most of the time they're they're more than willing to say, okay, even if we're only using 70% of the time, that 30% is more than enough to to keep, you know, Seamus and his team engaged with us. That absolutely makes sense. It's like, you know, you, you, you don't need it until you don't have it, right? And then um, and then that's when the problem comes in. So so yeah, okay. So what's the future like looking like um, in your eyes? Um, I, I did see you, you're hiring at the moment. I think is it um, is it's a, a, a lead role for the business, someone, uh, some a, a management capacity? Yeah. So we're you know we're we're growing at a at a pretty decent clip. So we we predict that over the next six to nine months we'll be hiring about it at a rate of one consultant per month, which is pretty rapid expansion. And you know for all the reasons we've described, I think that that's that trend will continue. I think that as long as we can keep the quality up and so on. So our biggest concern right now is scaling and maintaining that quality. And so right now, you know, I serve in a role where I'm basically project managing most of everything, right? I oversee and, and delineate service kind of that traffic cop to route the tasks to the appropriate resources. And I need another person who can do that. And, and ideally, you know, I recognize that there is virtue to having someone with the expertise of working in one of these other firms, right? Who's been there, done that. Combine the, you know, quote unquote, disruptive way that we're doing it with the well-established industry standards and, and hopefully create this hybrid super uh, machine. And so that's sort of what we're hiring for now is someone who, you know, eventually as we continue to grow, I, I would like to see kind of scale into kind of a head-salting role. Um, and allow me to sort of oversee. So, um, so if anyone that, that is listening to this, um, you know, it could even be someone that potentially is looking to do something similar, maybe in a different country, um, not not um, not with financial services in the Bay Area, but um, but yeah. So, anyone that kind of wants to pick your brains, where's the best place for for people to reach out to you? Yeah, by all means, I get people reaching out to me on LinkedIn. I think that's probably the easiest way. Seamus Reese Earl is a pretty unique name. You'll be able to find it without too much trouble. And we always love to talk with people. And I'm a big fan of kind of the networking element because as we expand good talent, high quality talent, it doesn't matter really where you're located. We're, we're willing to entertain that a conversation. Sure, it's been really great to hear more about the story about yourself and, and the business. And I'm sure, uh, yeah, that, that continued success will come. So thank you very much. 
thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talent Hub Talk. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could subscribe and also leave a short review. Um, we're keen for this podcast to reach as many people in the Salesforce ecosystem as possible.